Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Uh, Her Tell Show. It is Thursday, folks, August the 18th, year of our Lord 2022, just continues to roll right along. So glad you're with us for Her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go deep on a subject today, but it's an important one. Uh, the student loan crisis, people calling for forgiveness, people calling for reform, people calling each other names over it. A lot of calling. We're going to do some talking about it, student loan. We're going to get in Flavia Nunez, great young voices contributor, uh, part of the new generation of college students. She's down at UNC Chapel Hill, really sharp person. She's one of only 12 Bezos scholars in the country. We're going to talk to her about it. She's also part of this COVID generation that went through the school shutdowns and now they're in college. She's going to talk about the personal side of student loans because they just went through the process, how the narrowing of the window of doing it affects how they have to make decisions on these things. Then we're going to talk about, of course, the graduate part of it, the debt part of it, the policy, the politics. We're going to talk about student debt in depth with a personal twist on it, not just policy and buzzwords with Flavia Nunez today. Also, we always end usually talking about charity or something good in the world or an uplifting story. The biggest way that Americans donate money uh, out of their investments. There's some data out on the first part of 2022. It's very, very telling data. It also raises some questions. We're going to end the show talking about investment uh, giving. We're talking billions and billions of dollars in giving and charity and what it says about us and what we're doing philanthropically around the world. Touch on that in a little bit. But first, um, there's a story on social media that's being used and we need to turn down the noise on it. So let's start right there. Noise on something you may have seen on social media because we have sitting office holders. We have big name media personalities. We have sitting Congress people tweeting out this photo of of purported IRS agent training where they have on tactical gear, they're in a ballroom type situation, it looks like, and they've got guns out. It's bad trigger discipline. They look like they're pointing a gun at a guy's back. Uh, there's a gentleman in a wheelchair that looks like he's got a gun to the back of a suspect, this kind of thing. It looks really sloppy and ugly. And they're, of course, opining all over things because we just had the legislation passed with the 87,000 new IRS agents and all this, that, and the other. That's all fair game for criticism. The problem is these photos are not IRS training. It's something called the Adrian Project. It's been going on for years. Um, if you go to irs.com, you can look it up. We will link to it. I'm quoting here. If you think all accountants sit at a desk all day, IRS criminal investigation special agents prove you wrong. For years, IRS criminal investigation field offices have brought the Adrian Project. Let me repeat that. For years. This is not new to college and university campuses nationwide. How does it work? Classes participate in a day-long simulation of a mock criminal investigation. 
The goal is to provide students with a firsthand look at what it's like for IRS special agents to carry out an investigation, track illicit money from the crime to the criminal. Students are, quote unquote, sworn in as special agents in the morning, wear IRS protective vests. That's what you saw in the pictures. Use handcuffs, toy guns and radios to communicate with their counterpart agents on the case. The students sharpen their forensic accounting skills and are introduced to interviewing suspects, conducting surveillance and documents. The day ends when the students solve the crime and arrest the mock offender. The Adrian Project provides students a glimpse into career life of an IRS special agent and what a criminal investigation entails. In short, it looks sloppy and silly and like little kids playing dress up because that's what it was. It was students in some kind of a conference room or ballroom or some such playing IRS agents because the IRS has a long-running recruiting and PR program where they have them play act through this. So that's why you had poor dis trigger discipline. They're toy guns for a bunch of people that's probably never held one. So for sitting members of Congress and for big talking heads on major media networks to be tweeting this out, like this is attached to the 87,000 new IRS agents, it's silly, it's nonsense, and they should know better but they can just smash send and not have any repercussions. The problem with this is when you do silly stuff like this, the actual problem of having 87,000 new IRS agents, more specifically what they're going to be doing, gets lost because now you look silly because you were chasing an internet meme instead of the truth. Remember, folks, smashing send is always an option. Usually the option to not do so, at least until you Google something and make sure it is what you think it is, is the right option. Just because it fits into your priors doesn't mean you should smash send. So that's what's really going on with that. And you should judge the people who sent this out without checking into it first a little more harshly, especially if they've got TV gigs, especially if they have congressional seats that they sit in. We should demand better from them, not just the IRS, too, although they've got plenty of work to do as well. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we've been talking about this for a while. We're probably going to continue to talk about it because obviously nothing legislatively is going to be done about it. That means we may be looking back at White House action. Meanwhile, colleges are back in session. Most of them started this week. So let's talk a little bit about student loan debt. Uh, Flavia Nunez, Young Voices contributor. She's up at UNC Chapel Hill. But for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against her. Uh, thrilled to have you with us, ma'am. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Andrew? Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think there's some generation gap on this. So let's start with this because you're a college student. So you're right in that pocket. You just started school this week. Um, I got to do this with one of my kids. They just started college this week. What's the current generation of college students think about this? Because we're all looking at it as the national narrative. So before we get into the specifics of the student loan debt problem, you're the new generation of college students. What do they think about it? What are they discussing it? Are they discussing it at all? That's an interesting question because I do think it depends on the college student. A lot of high school students, at least seniors, are worried a lot about getting into the private schools, the elite schools, and really the price tag that's that's tuition, room and board. Not a lot of seniors truly think about that until they're admitted. So really it's just about um, trying to work, these four years of high school, trying to work, trying to build a resume, do good in school, really devote yourself to your extracurriculars to try to get into college, but really this conversation isn't had, isn't done until probably a month before you have to commit to that college itself. So a lot of kids are really, I wouldn't say blindsided because it isn't 
hidden necessarily, but they are left in this zone where they don't really know what to do, whether they should take on the debt for their quote unquote dream school or whether they should just um, go to another school that's still good, but isn't really what they wanted. So I feel a lot of college students are also, when they get to school, it, there's a split between those who, who depend on their parents to pay or who really think it's their parents' responsibility and those who are determined not to make it their parents' responsibility. And those are two very different philosophies. Uh, it really depends on the student that you see. There's a lot of students that work campus jobs as well to try to make it a little bit better. A lot of students, because loans are really, because yearly tuition prices range from, let's say, 15000 to 50000 uh, a lot of students take on loans themselves that they will have to start paying off after they graduate. And so their mentality is also, let me make the most of this experience. But really, as I said, it really depends. Is that the core of this debate's problem? Because we want to talk about it in news narrative clips and buzzwords and, you know, uh, erase student debt or forgive student debt. Those are all slogans. This is really complicated issue, though, because like incoming undergrad students, that's one subset of people. Then you have the graduate level. Then you have the postgraduate level, which is, you know, progressively more expensive and more, you know, specialized down, if you will, smaller and smaller groups of people. This has a lot of different categories under student loan debt, but we're always talking about it as if it's like a one size fits all problem that's going to have a one size fits all solution. And that's just not the case, is it? No, it definitely isn't. I was just talking about really undergraduate um, post-secondary education uh, when I referred to the high school seniors. But yes, you have graduate school in all forms. You have law school, med school. It really is a broad problem and it is definitely not a one size fits all. I mean, Right now, the, the narrative, the national narrative, as you said, is, is really um, focused on, I want to say millennials and those who started college perhaps in the 2000s or 2010s, who are now really um, not starting the workforce, but not really that far into it, and are just worried about how they're going to pay for a house, how they're going to pay for a car, how they're going to start a family. They're really set back because they have such an early debt. I mean, if you... Uh, if debt every um, every time the debt to income ratio increases by one percent, consumption decreases by three point seven approximately. So you have this this negative snowballing economic effect, whereby potentially the GDP suffers as well. So this is a problem that really right now is affecting one generation, but will most nearly affect mine as well, especially since college prices increase astronomically every single year. Yeah, and we're going to get into those numbers with you in a minute, according to the piece you wrote at Chalkboard Review as well. But I have to ask you, because you're talking about generations, and you're of this generation, so maybe a lot of people haven't heard from your generation about this, you're going to be forever tagged as the COVID generation. You went through the school lockdowns. I'm talking broadly here. Y'all went through the school lockdowns. You went through remote school How's that going to affect things? Because now you've got a whole generation of kids that are used to remote schools. Maybe they start looking at college expenses and go, hey, I did high school remote. Why can't I do more online college and do more hybrid stuff and maybe try to get my costs down? Or maybe they're looking at it as, no, I hated that model. I really want to go to school. And they take on that little bit of extra debt because they didn't like it. How much do you think COVID and the generation that went through that, that is now entering college or into their first or second year of college, How's that going to affect this debate, do you think? I think, honestly, from my personal experience and speaking to other college students my age, it's this like feeling of wanting to get out after so many years in your room doing school. You really lack that necessary social interaction that a lot of high school students depend on. Oh, let's go to after school to this um, ice cream store or let's hang out or let's have this party, a lot of people miss that connection. And when people think of college, they mostly they think of the academic component, how well the professors are, the class to the, the professor to student ratio. But a lot of the time, they're also a big, big factor is sports and social life, um, especially for the universities and I'm in. School spirit is a big, big thing. And so are parties. And I 
feel like that's almost a focus. You, after so long indoors, young people just want to get out. And college, I feel, um, referring to your question, yes, that makes, I, it, I believe that that makes people even more willing to take on that extra debt because they think that it will pay off in not just the long run, but the short run. Again, this is really a decision that's made for high school students in relative terms about a month. So you get accepted and get your financial aid package about a week after, if not immediately after you get accepted. And after that, you have approximately a month to decide whether to accept to pay that amount of money. And a lot of the time, you don't really think it through, especially at 18, you don't have you don't have all of your cards in order, all the chess pieces on the table. You don't really know if you're going to finish that degree. I mean, 38% of students um, or borrowers who were students at one point did not finish their degree. So what they worked forward, they didn't really gain the positive effects of it. So there you, there you start life with debt and not with necessarily the things that you expect a college degree to give you, like a higher paying job, more stability in life. So yeah, I feel like COVID does really change the mindset of, of my generation. We really want to go to college, not just to learn, um, though we sometimes, some of us prefer online classes because of their easier nature. We go to college to interact with others our age. Flavia Nunez joining us. Um, you just mentioned it, so let's just go there. Um, there's no ducking that this is a business model for a lot of people, including the schools, including others. That debt you're taking on, you talked about that narrow window from the time you do your FAFSA, you get your acceptance letter, you've got a very small window to decide whether you're going to do debt or not. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure because now you've gotten in, are you going to go, that sort of thing. These are. This is an age group. Um, you're taking on debt. They would not give you a car loan at that age with your background. They're not going to give you a house loan. They're not going to give you probably any loan of any kind. And yet you're allowed to take out student loan debt. People accuse it. I've used this terminology, too, that because the entire K through 12 system is designed to be a funnel to higher education in America now, this seems very, very predatory. Is there any other way to describe that, especially when you start talking about the realities of that narrow window where the kids have to decide that, considering this is the only kind of loan of this version that they would be allowed to get legally and yet we let uh, student loans for these young people go it feels predatory it looks predatory and then when you start looking backwards through the student loan debt crisis it really doesn't seem fair to the kids or anybody else am i missing anything there or is that a fair way to adjust that i mean i do believe that that's a word that can be used because a lot of students like i said they're 17 they're 18 but they, when they think college, they think, oh, my God, I'm going to be free. I'm uh, not really going to have pressure from my parents anymore. I'm going to have a lot of this independence. And there's also this, this ranking list and the, the idea of prestige and how much prestige counts for. So there is a lot of pressure, most definitely. I mean, there's also pressure from, from family figures as well because the FAFSA and um, the other financial aid applications cost money in and of themselves. I mean, personally, I paid close to $1,000 in financial aid applications. So almost when you get back your financial aid offer and it is not as much as you were expecting or little as is willing for you to be able to pay that amount, you kind of are stuck in a zone where you don't know what to do because you've already invested the time in applying but also know that with that amount of financial aid, you're not really going to get, for the FAFSA itself, there's a lot of, there are two kinds of aid that you can get. Grants that you don't have to pay back and loans that you do. Grants are the best kinds of scholarships because it's essentially, um, counselors call it free money. It's a scholarship money that you're given to just study. But loans, you do have to pay back. 
uh, sometimes even though they're subsidized, it is difficult. I mean, when you're just starting, when you're when you're expected to pay when you graduate, when you're just starting life, you you find difficulty not just looking for a job, but looking for a living situation. It is, I would say, to a certain level, a business model that has worked in the past. Usually, um, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact date, but admission cycles would be much earlier in the year. And so students had a much broader window for to see their financial aid offer and call the financial aid office and appeal for a new decision. There used to be a broader window, but that isn't really, as you can tell, as profitable for colleges. So that window was moved to this month-long um, process. For me personally, I did appeal um, a couple financial decisions, but uh, sometimes it's not even the financial aid officers who are at fault because they are truly trying to help you, but a lot of it is just equations that are that are stuck. So you, your family makes a certain amount of money. This is a certain amount of aid you're going to get, no matter where that money is inputted, or exactly how financially able you are to pay for that money. I think the root of the problem really is the large amount of money that college costs these days. I mean, it's an amount that is so large for an intangible object. I don't really think that there is anything that costs as much because at least for housing um, I mean a house costs an exorbitant amount of money but it's a physical property that you're going to get you know exactly what's going to happen right off the bat for education it's an investment in your mind in yourself but you never really know how that's going to turn out yeah Flavia Nunez joining us this is why I wanted to discuss this before we get into the numbers and break that down because that's the part everybody focuses on they don't focus on the people problem aspect of this. So everything we just said, talking about it being somewhat predatory, talking about the business model contracting it down, there's more and more money, there's more and more pressure to get more money, that shrinks the windows. Everything you just said, one of the largest vocal critics of student loan debt forgiveness is the folks that say, well, it's personal responsibility, nobody made you sign the loan. I understand that, I agree with that in principle. But how do you put a human face on that, too? Because like we said, th this is an age group that wouldn't get a loan for anything other than this. Where do you balance that out? Because, yes, you have personal responsibility, but this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening in a sequence of events where there's a lot of pressure put on these very young people to take on this debt. What do you think the ratio of personal responsibility to the system is here? I feel, yes, there is some level of personal responsibility because nobody is ever pointing a gun at your head saying, take on this loan or else. Um, so it is your um, decision and you are technically an adult because most people take on this loan at 18. Some people are not. Some people take on this loan at 17 or some people go to college at 16. But at the same time, you are making this decision when your frontal lobe isn't really developed yet either. Um, so, I mean, you can't drink until you're 21, and yet you can take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that will affect your life starting at this young age. So I feel like personal responsibility is definitely a factor, but it, like you said, it is this, some, there's definitely somebody taking advantage here in a way that we've seen throughout history. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who pays for a service and uh, in this case, the service is one that a lot of students don't really know. I mean, what you when you're 18, what you've lived is barely anything at all. You don't really know what it is to be an adult yet. You've lived with your parents or, or, or parental figures. And so you're off in a new place um, worrying about, let's say, doing your laundry for the first time or doing the dishes, maybe not for the first time, but definitely on your own and just you don't really realize like how much money it is to take on at such a young age and how much time you'll be paying it back and so you depend on other people a lot of the time to tell you what to do because you respect older figures so um, it really depends on the people also that you're surrounded with the responsibility also lies on them so i feel like for those who are saying that it is, uh, I guess, 
it is the fault of whoever signed the loan. I understand, but at the same time, it's the influence around that person and the institutions who have this model going forward. How much does that um, ratio change when you start talking about a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old, that age group that's going to do grad school or post-grad school or doctorate work, things like that? Does that calculus start to change a little bit as you get more older? Like you said, those are younger people. These are people that are more established in the world, know a little bit more. They've gone through the undergrad process, so they know the machinery of it, you know, because college is a machine. You're a cog in it. That's just what it is. Does that calculus change for those folks? Because they're the ones that have ability and a little bit more platform, a little bit more noise to make noise about things like student loan forgiveness that we hear from more often. Yeah, most definitely. I feel like for undergraduate, there's a lot of more options if you don't want to take on debt. Um, there are a lot of uh, community colleges available. There are a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but there are some scholarships specifically for undergraduate students who are not financially able to pay and some scholarships that are just fully merit-based. Um, there is there's a lot more leeway for undergrads than there are for graduate students, I feel. And while some undergraduate students have their debt paid for by the employers they're going to work with if they work with them after a certain time, a lot of graduate students, I feel, are left with no choice. They really do have to take on this loan, um, or if not, they won't be able to do the things that they necessarily want to do. Uh, be a researcher, work in academia, become a lawyer, become a doctor. But the logic behind that is that the that it's much it's a much bigger debt to take on graduate school because it's a much bigger degree. Uh, um, it gives you a lot more uh, credibility in your area, and uh, it's definitely what right now some lawmakers are trying to limit. Um, it's this. Uh, I forgot the name, but the abbreviation is real, and it's this act put forward by congressional lawmakers that most likely will not be passed because it is conservative in nature at this moment, but it limits grad student loans because that is such a big portion of the $1.7 trillion that we are currently facing today. Yeah, Flavia Nunez joining us. We're going to get into those numbers like she just mentioned. She's got a great piece about why the pause in student debt won't fix the problem. We're also going to talk about the pauses coming off from the COVID age and the abatements. That's all coming to an end. What's that means? More with Flavia Nunez right after this on Her Tech. All right, here we go. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Flavia. We're talking student loan uh, debt forgiveness, but also how that debt comes, trying to put a human face on it, not just talking the numbers of it. You've got a great piece up about at the chalkboard review about pausing student debt won't fix the problem. We understand during the COVID age, um, they pause student debt. Right now, the official listing for how much student debt is over 90 days is only at 5%, but that's a false number. And it's a false number because they paused everything. That pause is getting ready to come off. The COVID era funding is getting ready to come off. Practically speaking, what is that going to mean? Come so right now, um, Biden uh, has promised to announce a permanent solution for uh, this $1.7 trillion problem. So because the student pause has been, it started during the Trump administration, it's been uh, extended seven times for over two years. So as it's set to end this August, there's a lot of pressure on the White House to make a definite statement about student loan cancellation, which they ran on during the elections. So his plan right now is to cancel $10,000 per every eligible uh, borrower. When I mean plan, I mean this is what has been discussed, what has been hinted at, but nothing has officially been said. He wants to cancel $10,000 per eligible borrower, which is anybody making, I believe, less than $150,000 a year. When that happens, there's, as you can guess, a lot of contention whether this is a good idea or a bad mistake. 
but at the same time, it this idea lacks support from both sides of the aisle. Um, cancellation on a broad scale is not really seen as acceptable by the right and is not really enough. $10,000 is not enough for the left to be able, they believe, to make everybody who has student loan debt uh, stand on an equitable basis. So I feel as if the decisions right now at a standstill, Biden promised to have answers by April, but that, that didn't necessarily happen. He promises to have answers by August. That could or could not happen. If it does, the education department has already a plan in place. Uh, leaked documents show that they have plans to expand borrower defense to repayment um, and really streamline the process of broad cancellation for more and more students. What that means is we can't really necessarily say or know, but taxpayers will be taking the brunt of it as this, these loans are funneled through taxpayer dollars that are expected to be repaid to the government. And when they're no longer repaid, it's just the people that foot the bill are not ones who have a say in the game. And the pressure on them, because let's be adults here. We understand what's going on. We've talked about the postgraduate debt being a kind of a separate beast from the undergrad debt. That class of folks, predominantly, we don't want to get too much here, but predominantly, it's going to be a different class of people than some of the undergrads that are taking on debt. These are people that have more influence. These are people that are more established in their careers, probably. They're probably in a little bit different social standings. That affects this, right? Because one of the criticisms of wide student loan debt uh, is what you talked about earlier. The postgraduate debt is a different beast than the undergraduate debt. It's a different group of people who is it. But that's also the group that's got, you know, the political power and the social media platforming and the media platforming, because let's be honest, the media, almost all of them are um, college graduates and that sort of thing. Is that where this pressure is really coming from or is it more organic than that? No, most definitely. I feel like it would be a little naive to think that those who are pushing forward, who are making a student debt cancellation, a broader topic, a broader point of discussion, don't have a personal say in the game. It is very likely that those who want student debt to be canceled have a lot of student debt themselves. And very likely that those who don't want student debt to be canceled do not have a lot of their own. Um, so while you could stand on each topic as like, let's say a political view or an ideological view, like you're just against um, having the government play a broader role. And so because you lean typically conservative or you just want better welfare because you lean typically left. There is, I feel, as with a lot of things, but especially with the student debt crisis, a personal uh, reason to be involved. Because if you fight on, let's say, if you really expand this topic on and, and have a large voice, a large journalistic voice on social media or in the media itself and are able to reach more people or reach lawmakers or influence the Biden administration in any way, you have the, you stand to gain a lot in terms of how much, let's say, student debt you will not have anymore after that moment. And there's a lot of, you, you lose, you're going to lose hard or you're going to gain a lot. It could be an organic thing because $1.7 trillion is not something that can be ignored in any capacity, but I do feel like there is a lot of personal motivation in the conversation. been talking mostly we and i did it on purpose we wanted to start with the personal side of this because this gets real buzzwordy real gets real sloganistic but you and in your piece we're linking to it as always please read the piece in its full at chalkboard review we've got the links in the show notes um we've got to deal with the root cause which is about as impersonal as you get the institutional structure of how all this is designed and you touched on it in your piece the root problem 
with the student loan crisis is also the root problem with education, higher education in general, the astronomical cost. Uh, college is four times easily more expensive than it was 50 years ago. It's mostly administrative cost, infrastructure cost, those kind of costs that are driving this charge. That's the root cause. Is there anything at all to be done about that? Because as long as that beast needs fed, they're going to be looking at student loans and the financial system as the way to do it, right? Oh, no, for sure. I mean, if student loans are canceled and you set a precedent uh, for that kind of cancellation, then and they're promptly offered with less requirements, then colleges will only have an incentive to raise prices more because they realize that loans are more available to students and students are more likely to take them on with the expectation that they will be canceled. So these astronomical costs of college really started after 1978, after the Middle, Middle Income Student Assistance Act of 1978. They um, it made subsidized student loans much more broader. They, it, it, it made them much more available to other students. And so you saw this astronomical rise in prices simply because, again, colleges will still have consumers willing to pay for it because now they have this money available to them that is easily accessible, even though that money isn't technically their own. So these astronomical costs of college are, um, now that I, I started college, I didn't really understand before. I don't think you really can until you sit in the classroom and realize, okay, my tuition doesn't cover this class. It covers um, campus health. It covers uh how much mental health services on campus. It covers all the recreational services, the gym, the conference rooms, the libraries. And this question, I mean, this is just a theory of where the money is going. We don't really know because institutions are not required to disclose that information. This aspect, this theory that the money is mainly going to campus recreational activities, um, it means that it's time for perhaps campuses colleges and even lawmakers to start evaluating whether it's necessary or whether it's it's right to charge such a large amount of number for these facilities for students who just want to go to college for the academic component. Again, there's another theory about why costs have risen so much, and that's that colleges depend on a high wage labor um, model. And that could very well be the case too, but we don't really know how much deans or, or chancellors or professors are paid because it's not required for them to disclose that information. Um, I'm not proposing that this is a solution, but these are just many different factors that should also be included in the conversation because I feel like the student debt crisis is really mainly focused and a lot of the blame is placed on the students that take on the debt and the federal government that gives out the debt, but hardly none of it is ever put on institutional accountability. It's people take college prices and, and, and these $50,000, $80,000 price tickets as something normal, when that should really be reevaluated. Uh, Flavia Nunez joining us from Young Voices. Let's be honest here, the deans and the presidents and the department heads, they're not missing any meals, whatever their salaries are, they're doing okay. We know what the football coaches are making, especially at the state schools. We know what the university presidents are making for the most part because that's a competitive thing and they tend to go around place to place. They're making bank. Is there going to be a place to kind of loop this back where we started with the personal? On a practical level as adults, just grown folk talk here, we understand this system is not going to change until something seismic happens where the money flow gets cut off. That means people either stop going or stop taking out the loans. Is there anything on the horizon that's going to shake the system up? Because there's been lots of punditry about, you know, there's a higher education bubble, like this isn't sustainable forever. At some point, you know, trees don't go to a sky. They can't keep making this more and more expensive. The problem with that is if you have something like that, a lot of people are going to get hurt. And it's probably not those administrators that make a whole lot of money. It's probably the lower level professors and the students that's going to eat that cost. And they're the ones that's going to get hurt on it. But do you see anything like that coming on the horizon when you look at these numbers? Or is this just the way the system is going to be for the next 5, 10, 20 years? I feel like what you're talking about, how students and lower professors are going to take the brunt of, of whatever happens, whatever negative effects happen in the future, whether it's that the problem grows bigger and college tuition prices get, uh, rise to even greater amounts, or whether it's the opposite, whether college tuition prices um, lower for whatever reason, whether it's public backlash or, or through the lawmaking process, 
whatever happens, you are completely right. I do not feel like the higher ups at the college, at institutions will receive the, the brunt of the negative effects. I do feel, however, that um, they will not, a lot of it is put, like they, their jobs are to make their institutions seem as great as they can be. And I feel like while they won't necessarily be forced to give up their salaries or to take on any action because they, the, the system that they have going works for them or is comfortable, there will be a time where this prestige will turn from a positive connotation as it does now. I mean, the, the richest parents want their, their children to go to these elite colleges. Um, the celebrity parents, there was this, um, the, the crisis at the University of Southern California where parents paid exorbitant amounts of money in order to fake that their students were on sports teams in order to get them into colleges. I mean, people pay a lot of money and risk a lot on this idea of prestige. And I do feel like this word that is so good and that colleges strive to achieve, it will go in a very negative light in the coming years because people will start associating prestige with, with corruption, perhaps, um, with the idea that it's, it's not a true meritocracy because it's limited to not just the people who can get in, but the people who can pay for that. Um, I, in the coming horizon, perhaps not the next five years, but by the time my children are born or my children go to college, they're, they, it's not going to be as it is now. It's impossible. 1.7 trillion, even with cancellation, will only grow, especially with cancellation, if that is the, the path that the White House decides to take. It's just unavoidable. Organically, like you said, it's a problem that only has an exponential trajectory, whether it's it gets worse or if action is done now and it gets better. This the education system right now is a broken bone and cancellation is just a band-aid, really. You have to set the bone right now. It's up to right now, the like the generation that you said, those who are taking on graduate loans, who are who have a voice in the media right now, it's on them also to bring attention to this and to provide more permanent solutions that lie beyond their personal say in the matter. At the same time, I don't feel like that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I'm concerned as well. Uh, Flavia Nunez, let's end it on this, though. This is a complicated policy problem. It's a hot-button political issue. How do we keep the people focused on it, that personal face on it, when people are just talking about this on their social media and debating it with, with people, not the media, just us, you know, regular people? How can they change how they talk about this issue on their social media and when they're discussing and debating with folks to maybe push this forward and kind of get away from that buzzwordy stuff of, oh, they took on the debt, they deserve it, or you should forgive it, you heartless people. Why wouldn't you forgive debt? This is, you know, awful. That kind of stuff that's not really helping anything other than just making it louder. How should they be talking about this issue, do you think? I feel like right now, um, as it's natural for this generation, they're focused on the immediate repercussions. So personal effects on personal loan debt for each individual borrower, let's say. What is What I don't see a lot in the media is the broader picture. What this is going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15, 50. Uh, this is a bubble, as you say, and it's gonna pop eventually, but that's not what the media is focused on right now with the people who have, um, like the debate right now is on cancellation when it should really be about the root of the problem, which is the cost itself. I do feel like it is necessary for the conversation to change in that aspect for you to be able to say, okay, well, it is true that this is a problem right now, but how can I make sure that it doesn't become a bigger problem later? Lavia Nunez, she's one of only 12 Bezos scholars in the United States. She's a Moorhead Kane scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I was giving it a little hard time earlier because I've been in North Carolina a long time, so I like to give them a hard time. It's an excellent school. It's very prestigious. Well done on that. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep track with what you've got coming next until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Thank you so, so much for this opportunity. I had so much fun. I, I love talking about this. So right now I don't have a Twitter, which is a mistake of mine. So Probably a smart thing. 
That's not a yeah. bad thing. Good, good. Um, uh, my LinkedIn is Flavi Nunez. You can follow me there. Yeah, and you can check her out on the Young Voices page, on the talent page. She's got a lot of stuff going. We're expecting big things from her in the future. Flavia Nunez, really great job on this. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Andrew. What a great way to spend the morning. Oh, thank you very much. We'll talk soon. Take care, ma'am. You too. Bye. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. We always end on something that's on a good note. Often that is some kind of a charity thing. This is one of the biggest charity and grant makers in the world. Comes from WNYT.com. That's News Channel 13 for those of y'all up there. Um, Donations from Fidelity Charitable climbed 11% to a record $4.8 billion for the first half of 2022. The nation's largest grant maker announced on Wednesday growth in payouts from Fidelity's donor-advised funds which lets donors enjoy tax deductions and investment gains on their donations before they give the money away, paints a far sunnier picture about philanthropy than other recent reports. The Giving USA report released last month found 2021 donations were down 0.7% when adjusted for inflation. That was a sign that the sector is generally struggling to keep pace with increased needs caused by the higher prices and global crises like the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. Quote, individual donors are thoughtful when it comes to contributing to their donor-advised funds, letting those grow out of the funds impact they give. Fidelity Charitable President Jacob Pruitt told the Associated Press they can give more at the end of the day, and not only are giving more, but they're giving it to a variety of different causes. Fidelity Charitable donations earmarked more than $128 million in grants to Ukraine aid efforts in the first half of 2021. Pruitt said emergency relief operations organized for the International Medical Corps saw the number of Fidelity Charitable donors provide them a grant jump more than 1,000% compared to the first half of 2021, while Chef Jose Andres' food security nonprofit World Central Kitchen grew by more than 500%. Similarly, Schwab Charitable announced Tuesday that its grants through its donor-advised funds were up 27% to over $4.7 billion in the 2022 fiscal year, which ended June 30th. Pruitt said Fidelity Charitable had seen some slowing down in donations in recent months, but it's hard to tell whether that will continue. He said the data on the amount of money invested into donor-advised funds in 2022 so far would not be available until the end of the year. But, quote, when the market is down, there is volatility. Our donors usually step up. He said generosity will continue. However, Gilded Giving 2022, a new report on donations released Tuesday by the Institute for Policy Studies, say the increased popularity of donor-advised funds is distorting philanthropy and the kinds of charity that receive the money. Chuck Collins, co-author of the report, said that top-heavy philanthropy where wealthy people dominate charities because the majority of people are struggling economically and are giving less and are less able to afford to give. He said wealthy people tend to focus on donations to foundations that they control or legacy gifts. According to the report, donations over $1 million in 2021 went mainly to foundations that the donors controlled, donor-advised funds, and colleges and universities. It notes that less than half of American households now donate to charity, down from 68% just 20 years ago. Collins, this is a quote, the more that wealthy people shape the priorities of philanthropy, the less we see people giving directly to those helping in their communities. We should see that change with the increase of oversight. We should fix the design flaw. Legislating required those using donor-advised funds to finish giving away the money within 15 years in order to maintain their income tax deduction, was introduced in the Senate last year by Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Independent Senator Angus King of Maine, who caucuses with the Democrats. Another proposal would let money remain in the donor-advised funds for 50 years, but it would not be eligible for an income tax deduction until it is donated. 
Fidelity Charitables Pruitt said he supports legislation that encourages donors to actively make grants for their donor-advised funds, though he points out that most of the money in the accounts is already donated within five years. The worry, he said, is the unintended consequences. Some news on how some big money donations get done, still doing a lot of work, maybe little policy things we can look at going down the road. Just be aware of it, that there's a lot of people out there still giving a lot of money. We can parse out how it is later, but folks are still giving. And that's a good thing. Make sure you're giving in your communities where you can, how you can. And that'll do it for what we're going to give you today on Hertel. We're all done. But you can find us on all the podcasting platforms. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us on our Big Talker radio partner. However you're watching or listening, we sure appreciate you. Make sure you're subscribing. Make sure you're following us at Hertel Show on the Twitter. Make sure you're emailing us. We'd love to hear from you. We might even put it on the show. We've done whole segments and whole shows off reader requests, feedbacks, and opinions. Uh, Hertel Show at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. So till we hear from you again, we hope wherever you are across the street or around the world that you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk again real soon for more Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.